is good to be together. Mother's Day can be a Sunday that is joyous, it is fun, it can also remind us of things, it can remind us of those that we've lost. Uh, I am without a mom, my birth mom who passed away many years ago, but I literally have the best mother-in-law on earth, okay? And some of you have some great mother-in-laws. My mother-in-law is out of this world. Mimi is legiticus. Uh, But today is a day where we get to celebrate moms, but more importantly, we get to honor Jesus Christ. And we're going to spend time in his word, what we just read, and we're going to walk through this and be challenged by what God says about himself and what he says about those who would honor him and trust him. Every week I have the honor, almost every week, of putting together a sermon, spending time in God's Word, hanging out at Pete's Coffee, looking at what the text says, reading others' opinions, looking at the original language, thinking about how it applies to people's lives, and then I get to bring it to you. And to be totally honest, there's some fear in me when it comes to bringing God's Word. And it's not because I have to stand in front of a lot of people, done this for a few decades now, that that by God's grace, I don't have stage fright in that sense. But I, I do have some fear. And the fear is not because I'm worried if you're going to like it. The fear is not, oh, am I going to say something that's going to upset you? The fear is this, that even though I will be held accountable by many of you if I teach anything that's out of the text, in fact, there are some specific people I know, and I could name names, that would be like, hey, Tim, you said this. I'm more fearful of God because myself as a teacher, I'm going to be judged more harshly than those who don't teach the Word of God. And I'm going to bring the Word of God to you, and my hope is that I I don't teach you anything that would lead you astray from Jesus. And so that's where the fear is. But then that's the fear of God. Let me give you the fear to man. Not fear of man, but the fear to man. Here's what it is. We're going to bring truth every single week. We're going to walk through what the Word of God says, and the fear that I have is that it would harden your heart. See, when the truth is explained, when it's taught, when you hear it, if you do nothing with it, your heart gets harder over time. But if you put it into practice, if you obey what the Word of God says because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if He resides in you because you've trusted Jesus you get to grow and look more like Christ. And so my fear is that your heart would harden. And my other fear is that as I bring the Word of God and I teach it to you and others teach the Word of God to you, that we would do it through motives that are not godly. We would do it through motives because as we make much of Jesus, people often make much of us. And so my fear is that it would not be considered an act of worship because we're doing it to make much of us rather than God. I don't want to harden our hearts, but the point of a worship service, the reason we come together as a church body to worship corporately, the point of a worship service is not to accumulate information, but to obey the words of God and practice worshiping Jesus as a lifestyle. I can't stress that enough. We come, we get equipped, we get around God's word, we hear what it says, we talk about it, and then the hope is we process out loud with other people, and then we put into action the things that we're convicted of from his word, and that is an act of worship as a lifestyle as we leave this place. 
Today we're going to conclude this discussion between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, where Jesus has made known that he will step over man-made traditions to bring truth to people, and that Jesus doesn't allow your sin to be an excuse for you not to hear the truth. But today we will see that God is accumulating worshipers, worshipers of the one true God, not just believers, not just disciple makers, which we ought to be, but worshipers, those who see their lives as worship services devoted to Jesus. Worship isn't just a word that we use. Worship is a value that we have as a church, and we contribute time and resources In our Sunday services, we ask other people to be involved in the process, and we plan, and we prepare, and we we pray. And we often come to a Sunday gathering to get and to receive God's Word, to receive fellowship, to receive good feelings from times of singing. But we're not here to receive, church. The goal is not to entertain or to give to you or to create a place you can feel comfortable, even though it's somewhat comfortable in this room. Just wait till July. But to prompt you towards worship, to persuade you to worship Jesus as the Christ, to worship in spirit and in truth. But we probably need to define what we mean when we say worship, because I can guarantee we all may have many different understandings and definitions and presumptions of what we mean when we say worship. So when we say worship, it can mean a lot of things, and worship isn't actually that holy of a word. The Greek word that is used means to give honor to a superior being. That's what it means to worship. But it also takes on this posture of a kiss. If you know the person next to you, no, I'm just kidding. It takes on this posture of a kiss. And this is why for centuries, especially in royalty-type countries, if you came into the presence of a king or a queen, you would bow. And if you had the opportunity, you would take their hand and you would kiss their hand or you would kiss the ring on their hand. This was their physical act of worship to a superior being of royalty. But to worship means to give reverence. It means to give praise. It means to give glory, but to give. And as Daniel in particular and I have been talking a lot as he's the chair of the trustees and we've been talking about generosity, we want to give praise. We want to give reverence. We want to give it generously to our God, not only because he deserves it, but because he is worthy and we ought to be people that give praise to our God. But in order to give generously, it has to cost you something. That's one of the things that has keep has kept coming up. So in order to give generously to God honor, it costs us something. So what did it cost us this morning, church? What did it cost us? Obviously, we have to give up time, right? We put on our Sunday best. Look around. Y'all look pretty good, all right? We put on our Sunday best. We get up. We, if you're anything like me and my family, we probably get frustrated with our kids in the car, right? Anyone? Just me? All right. We give up sleeping in on Sunday mornings, We give up doing the other things that we could do Sunday morning, and we put in this time. And I'll tell you that often people will come to a worship service on a Sunday morning even though they don't have a relationship with Christ. And even if you think we know that you do or don't, we don't. We can't see into your heart. I do want to talk about, there's usually three reasons people come to a worship service if there's no relationship with God. They're not necessarily bad. 
One of them is. Here's the first one, that we want community. That's true of those of us who are in relationship with Christ. We want community with God's people. And if you have not had the Holy Spirit challenge you and redeem you, if you've not received Christ as Lord, you kind of look at Christian community as, oh, they're pretty honest. They're pretty good. That's why we ask you to pray, because you don't think anyone's going to steal your wallet and you'll close your eyes, right? But, but we want community. And if you're outside of a relationship with God, you kind of see community as, oh, it's good. Christians are nice people. But another reason, this is the one that's kind of bad, people come to church on a Sunday not because of community, but because they're feeling guilty because of all the stuff they've done against God during the week. And there's kind of this idea that you're going to make up for the things that you've done wrong by coming in here on a Sunday. And it doesn't actually work that way. But then here's the third one. And I want to tell you that for some of you, this is you, if you know it or not, that you're being drawn by God. Because you know the gospel will be preached. Your friends or your family who brought you knows that Jesus will be talked about. We're not just going to talk about him. We're going to talk to him, and we're going to talk specifically what he said about himself, and his name's going to come up a lot, and we're going to talk about how he's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. But when we don't have a relationship with God, we sometimes come to a church context anyway. And usually it's one of these three reasons. And we, as the leadership of Church of the Valley, who kind of make Sunday mornings happen, we want to create a space, a moment in time that you can engage with God corporately, remove distractions as you get to respond to God in honor. Everything we do here on a Sunday in particular is to provoke a response of worship from you. Not to us, not to man, but to God and what he has accomplished. But we do not want to worship in a way that is unacceptable to God. What a waste if we think we are worshiping God in a way that he is pleased and yet he doesn't accept our worship. And yes, if God is who the Bible says that he is, then only he is worthy of our true honor, our worship from our hearts. But we also, but he also is worthy of worship that he deserves and wants, so we ought to worship him the way he says that he wants worship from his word. So I have a one-point sermon. So if you take notes, here's your one point. I'm not saying it's going to be your takeaway, but I only have one point in this entire sermon. Here's the one point. Everything's built around it. Here we go. God does not accept worship if we worship a God that is not the God of the Bible. God does not accept worship if we worship an undercase God that is not the God of the Bible. So, I'm going to take you back a little bit in this as we've been going through John chapter 4. We've seen Jesus and the Samaritan woman had this conversation, and we're going to go back just a little bit before Ruth read. John chapter 4, verse 15. We're going to get caught up. This woman comes to the well at noon. Jesus has also come to the well at noon. Samaritans and Jews normally don't have conversations, and they're having this discussion, and she's talking about physical things. He's talking about spiritual things. It sounds like they're having two different discussions. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Well, he's talked about living water, this living water that wells up and is a spring. Verse 16, Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back. Again, it kind of sounds like they're having two different discussions. 
And he's trying to lead her towards a spiritual redemption in Jesus. And she's ready. She's like, I want this water. And he's like, great, go call your husband. And she's like, what? Go call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. Now, this conversation is getting a little awkward. Anybody? You see this? Verse 18, the fact is you've had five husbands. Woo-wee. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. I expect Jesus doing this while he's saying it. Verse 19, this is where we started. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Jesus and the Samaritan woman have this discussion, and Jesus has told her things that only she and a superior being would know about her. But she believes he's a prophet. She believes he has supernatural inspiration, but she does not see who he truly is just yet. She continues, verse 20, and she says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Both Jews and Samaritans recognized that God had commanded their forefathers to identify a special place of worshipping him, a holy place to worship him. That was Deuteronomy 12. The Jews recognizing all of the Old Testament, the entire Hebrew canon, chose Jerusalem. We see this in 2 Samuel. The Samaritans recognize only the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, noted that the first place that Abraham built an altar to God was at Shechem. Do you like that? There's phlegm. Which was overlooked by Mount Gerizim, where the Israelites had shouted blessings promised by God before they entered the promised land. This is Deuteronomy 11. And as a result, they chose Mount Gerizim for the place of their temple. So that's why she says this. You guys want to worship there, but we worship here. And then Jesus says this in verse 21, woman. I always think of, so I married an axe murderer. Anyone? Okay, that's fine. Woman, she replied. Now, this is the third time Jesus has used the word woman. The first time was with his mom. The second time was also with him or with her. But woman is this endearing response. Woman, she, he replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So, real quick, what do you think Jesus is alluding to? I mean, I'm going to give you the answer. But what do you, what do you think he's alluding to? Let me, let me ask this question. What if God came to us? I mean, spoiler alert, most of us believe he already did, but think about it. What if? What if God came to us? What if he clothed himself in humanity? What if God knew that we couldn't work our way to him, so he sent himself to come live the life we couldn't and die the death we should have and rose from the dead so we could know that he is who he says he is? What if? Here's what I want you to hear. I want you to understand that the place that you worship isn't as important as the God that you worship. You guys hear me? Because, like, that got amens in first service. I don't know what. You guys slept in longer. The place you worship isn't as important as the God that you worship. And, and here's why that's so important for you to understand, because so often we think that we have to come into a church building. Now, I'm all about this. I'm not saying don't come here. Well, unless you don't want to grow, then yes, I'm saying don't come here. But we get to come into this place, and we get to worship corporately, and we get to be spurred on. 
Uh, young people, if you know who you are, and some of you are like, that's me. No, it's not. Um, <clears throat> young people, you don't realize the difference that you're making in some of the people that have been in this church for decades. You know the difference you're making? You're showing them that there is a generation that wants to worship God in spirit and in truth. You're showing them that, that God has worshipers that are willing to give up time and effort and engage with him. And that's softening hearts because they're seeing true worship take place from people that are their grandchildren's age. So the place that you worship isn't as important as the God that you worship. And worshiping knows no geographic bounds. Do you see that? Because wherever you are, you can worship, right? But for many of us, we have expectations that in order to worship, it's got to be just right. Oh, you guys don't know this? Yeah, this is what church people do. It's got to be just right. Certain lights have to be on. The songs have to be a certain way. The pastor can't say this or that. And I'm, I'm not talking about styles only. Like one of the most comical things, I've been following Jesus 16 years, one of the most comical things that I've heard at every church I've ever been to has been about song selection. Okay, not even talking styles, talking about song selection. I've been told more times than I can remember after a worship service this. I didn't like that song. You know what's really interesting about that? The song wasn't for them. And yet people start to go, well, that wasn't my kind of song. I didn't like that song. See, music invokes emotion, doesn't it? And so we can hear a certain song, and it takes us back to a certain moment, and it's incredibly important that we experience these things. But we're here to worship God, not each other. We're here to worship God and give praise to God. And emotions and feelings, they're not bad. Okay, so please don't think I'm like, you know, I, I have no emotion. You saw my son? That kid's me, dude. Like, <laughs> crazy. Emotions and feelings are not bad, but if we attempt to manipulate a reaction rather than invite a commitment, we are nothing more than salesmen. That should hurt a little because we want to engage people to make a commitment to follow Jesus rather than just have an emotional reaction to him. Worship, praise, hymns, new and older songs, they are created to invite commitment not a momentary feeling. I was meeting with, uh, they left because they were pouring into our kids, but I was meeting with uh, someone in the church on Friday having lunch, and he quoted one of his former pastors. He said this, as Christians, we don't say lies as much as we sing them in church. You picking up what I'm putting down? We sing these songs about how Jesus is the only one, that we praise him, that we love him, and yet we worship ourselves. We don't say lies as much as we sing them. So here's my question. Do you mean what you sing? I'm not saying, do you like every single song? Or wait, who wrote this song? I don't want to listen. No, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the words on the screen. Do you mean them? Not only are they theologically strong, but do you mean them when you sing these words to God? Let's, let's, let's take another form of worship. What about tithes and offering? Do we give out of a grateful heart because it's all God's anyway? and we're asked to give back a percentage? Do we give back because of all Christ has done, or do we give in an offering out of a guilty conscience that we're hoping to clear? I know I've been guilty of that. John chapter 4, verse 22. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Mic drop. Jesus was sometimes vague for the benefit of the hearer. I don't know if you knew that. He was sometimes vague for the benefit of the hearer so the truth would not harden the hearer's heart because he knew that they would not receive it. He knew they would not put it into practice. But sometimes Jesus was pretty clear, wasn't he? He was very direct. And depending on the tone that you think Jesus says things when you read his words, you could actually miss what he is saying because of the directness of how difficult this is to hear. See, Samaritans had worshipped an incomplete God, one that they had closed their minds to. They did not believe all the Old Testament. They just believed the first five books of what we have in the Old Testament, thus not having full revelation as God had revealed himself to his people. So again, God will not accept our worship if we worship a God that is not the God of the Bible. But the God of the Bible does not accept worship of the God of your own opinion either. Because sometimes we hear verses and we start to quote them, we start to put things together, but they're out of context, and then we start to build an opinion of God. And we think we should worship a God of our own opinion. See, here's the thing. You can be sincerely devoted, and you can be sincerely wrong. Just got to be honest about that. You can be sincerely devoted and be sincerely wrong, and we've seen this across the world with a ton of different religions, a ton of different cults. The people are devoted. They're devoted to a methodology. They're devoted to rituals and will justify themselves based on how good they are at being devoted. This is Pharisee 101, church. That's what that is. But to worship God the way you see him rather than the way he explains himself in Scripture is worship that God will not receive. Let's just be honest. Many don't know how to worship God. Outside of coming on a Sunday, singing songs, we don't know how to worship him. We don't know how to love him the way that he'd tell us to love him because, if we're honest, a lot of us don't read the scriptures for ourselves. So we create idols. We create rituals that do not suffice. So your fingers in John 4, I would ask you to go to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. So we're going to get back to, we're going to go to Exodus, we'll come back to John, but Exodus chapter 20. Moses, Charlton Heston for some of you, Moses had been leading the Israelites out of captivity. They had no laws. There were about 3.2 million Israelites that he was leading out of Egypt, and they were wandering in the desert, not going very far. And he was leading them out of captivity, and there were no laws. There were no guidelines for them to abide by. It was anarchy, guys. And God called Moses up the mountain to receive what we know as the Ten Commandments. In the Hebrew language, if you had a list of anything, the first thing was always most important, and we're going to see why in just a moment. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 3, here's what it says. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. God's first commandment in the Ten Commandments embodies what would make it So if you do this one right, all the others are done right as well. But if you do this one wrong, all the others are done wrong as well. And you've heard me say this before, but don't put God first and not make him center. Because we play theological hopscotch and we do this whole, well, I made him first, I read a devotional, and then the rest of the day is mine. No, it's not. 
God, if he redeems you and he changes you, Jesus should be center in your life, and you should not just put him first and get him out of the way, but everything you should be done should be centralized on him. That's why he is center control of our lives. And by making him center, we are centered on his words, his commands, and his example. But look at the second commandment out of the ten. Here's what it says. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Do you know that the human condition is to make God into an image or a symbol that we can understand? One that we can manage? One that we can control? And God commands us to not look to a symbol for salvation, but to a Savior. And that Savior's name is Jesus. All right, that was Exodus. Back to John chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus continues, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Up until this point, there was this anticipation for the Savior, for the Messiah, for the Christ to come, but Jesus is there. And because Jesus is there in the flesh, the time has come. It wasn't just coming, it had come. His rescue plan was in full effect to seek and save the lonely, to seek and save the broken, to seek and save the lost and the hurting. Have you ever heard this argument, church? Someone outside of the faith looks at your Christianity or looks at someone's faith and they go, ah, God's just a crutch. Anybody ever heard this? Anyone ever said this? I have. God is just a crutch. And my response to that now is always, you're right, because I know my legs are broken and I know I'm in need. It's those who don't realize that they are broken that will just continue to walk on their broken legs and it will just create more and more brokenness until it's too late. So God is a crutch, church, for those who realize that they're broken. The, worshiper, the worshipers that the Father seeks are those who will worship the God of the Word, not the words of God. I have no idea how you just heard what I said. The worshipers that God seeks are not those, are those who will worship the God of the Word, not just the words of God. Here's why I don't know how you said that. Because this past week I was going to Chipotle, super holy I know, and I walk into Chipotle to pick up my lunch, and I see a friend that I haven't seen in a while. A young man I used to invest in, we used to meet at Pete's all the time, and we used to talk. And we sit down, and we're ha and, or I'm sorry, I, I see him, and we talk real fast. It's like, hey, how's, how's the ministry? How's your family? And blah, 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 real quick. And then I leave, and I send him a text, and I say, hey, man, I'm really sorry. I, I had to run. I was late for another meeting. I'd love to catch up sometime. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay, that'd be good. And he texts me about 24 hours later. And when he texts me, he goes, hey, sorry it took me so long to text you back. I got to be honest. I haven't, I haven't been in any type of community for months. I'm not meeting with any Christians. I've effectively walked away from the faith. And this was a young man who pretty much, in my opinion, was worshiping the words of God and not the God of the Word. And here's why 
I don't know how you heard what I just said because he couldn't hear it when I said, bro, I think you worship the Bible, not Jesus. And he would always push back on that. And he goes, I don't see the difference. But now I look back and I see the telltale signs because we can justify our relationship with God based on how many verses we can quote. And you know who can quote more than you? Satan. And he knew how to quote the Bible. He, in his opinion, had a really strong theology. But you know what happened? He's effectively walked away from the faith. Now, here's the thing. I don't think you can lose your faith, but I just don't think he ever had his faith rooted in Christ. And so it was just rooted in the words of the Bible. And so this is true. I don't want us to be a people that go, oh, we preach the Bible. No, we love Jesus. That's what we do. But we believe the Jesus of the Bible, who reveal, God reveals himself through his words in the Bible. So again, I don't know how you're hearing that, but we want to give honor to the God of the word, not just the words of God. It's easy to quote a Bible verse or post a verse without context with the hope that others will see us as spiritual. Here's the thing. You and I can know God from what he says about himself in the Bible. We can understand his essence from what he reveals about himself in Scripture. But often we forget that the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God doesn't evolve, okay? It, it doesn't, we're not adding to it. It's not like, oh, Francis Chan said something really good. Put that in Isaiah. No! That's not how it works. The Word of God does not evolve, but our understanding of Him does. Has anyone read a passage lately that you read 10 years ago and you understand better today because of experience? That is your faith working itself out. And that's why we read and apply. That's why we read and apply. We read and apply. We read and apply. And we rinse and repeat and we read and apply. You know why? Because that's how we grow. When we practice the words of God, when we obey them, we are being sanctified. We are spiritually growing. And everything we do is to provoke a response of worship from you, church. We want to provide a space where distraction will cease and devotion to Jesus will increase. That's why we do this on a Sunday. That's why we sing the songs that we do. And the Lord seeks those who will humble themselves, those who will honor him and will repent, change direction of self-idolatry and trust him as the only God that can save, sanctify, and satisfy. I probably got a little carried away in first service, but here's the truth. Hear me. Believe me. Jesus is the only God that can satisfy a God that you create in your own mind will always be one that you can control, not the God of the Bible who is the only one that can satisfy. So verse 24, here Jesus is still talking. He says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the, in the spirit and in truth. So we notice that over these two verses, Jesus emphasizes spirit. Now, uh, real quick, a poll. So if you're looking at that verse, if you're looking at verse 24, okay, if you're looking at it in your Bible, so look at your app or your Bible, how many of you, that second spirit, so not God is spirit, but where it says, and worshipers must worship in the spirit, how many of your Bibles have that S as capital? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of us. How many of those, that second spirit, have, have spirit as undercase S? Okay, so about 60-40-ish or 70-30, mostly undercase. 
Some translations use a capital S, which means the Holy Spirit. Some translations don't. When we're not sure, I teach both situations as long as they're not in contradiction with one another. That's my rule of thumb, okay? So I I have an opinion, but I'm going to teach both. If it is undercase S, it would imply that Jesus meant to worship him in truth, which means his very words, and in spirit, which means the human spirit, if it's undercase S. It means that it is our inner being, that we wouldn't just worship him outwardly, but we would worship him inwardly with a devotion. And that's true. That's true if it's undercase S or uppercase S. But my opinion, honestly, is that he meant Holy Spirit. Pneuma, breath, ghost is an incorrect translation. Just putting that out there. Sorry, King James. But Pneuma, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the comforter, the intercessor, the Spirit of God that resides in those of us who have trusted and follow Jesus, that we would worship him in truth and in spirit. So this alludes to the fact, simply, that God God is spirit. It alludes to the fact that God is invisible to man unless he reveals himself via the Holy Spirit. And God did this in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He revealed his character and his work through sending his son to earth, clothed in humanity, living, walking, breathing, being tempted, never straying from the will of the Father. Jesus isn't just the exact representation of God. He is God. Thank you. It is the Spirit of God that testifies to this. And the truth is, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you can't worship God the way that God wants you to worship Him. Because it is the Spirit that removes the veil. It is the Spirit that gives us the eyes to see the importance and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And many struggle with worshiping God in both spirit and truth because we often worship a God that we can control, one we can make up, one that, that we think cares more about our feelings than us actually obeying him. Verse 25, the woman responded, I know that the Messiah, known as the Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. So it's good to know that she understood that the Messiah was coming, but to use the words of Maxwell Smart in Get Smart, she missed it by that much. That was for six of us. She knew the Messiah was coming, but she had no idea that the Messiah would personally engage her, a Samaritan woman. She had no idea that the Messiah would engage her people, Samaritans. And even for the Samaritans who had an incomplete understanding of God, they were expectant of the Messiah. So church, let me, let me give you a spoiler real quick. The Messiah has come. He's here. He has lived in our history. He has walked among us. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he has invited you to follow him to be adopted into his kingdom, to be image bearers of the king. But are you still waiting to recognize the Messiah? Even though he's already come, are you still waiting for him? Even though he's revealed himself through living the life you couldn't, dying the death you should have, and rising from the dead? Jesus then says in verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus does not mince words. 
he makes known that the one she has been waiting for is in front of her. Friends, if you are here and you need to hear that there is peace, there is love, truth, salvation, joy, forgiveness, shalom, victory over sin, that the Word of God is taken on flesh, that He has dwelt among us, that He has come into our world, that He is our reality. We do not have to wait for Him to come the first time because He already has. He's coming back one day, and you and I should not look busy. We should be devoted. We should honor. We should worship with all that we are because when He comes back, you're going to wish you had done it sooner. And so here's my call to you, worship team. You can come on up. If you're in this place and you've worshiped a God of your own opinion, if you've worshiped a God that is in conflict with the Word of God, I challenge you to repent. I challenge you to be reminded, even if you are in relationship with him, that none of us follow him perfectly, but as we pursue the perfect one, it leads to progress. And so if you're in this place and you're struggling with the fact that your marriage is hurting or your kids are disobedient or how are you going to make rent or why don't I have enough friends or why is my heart becoming hard, I challenge you to look to Jesus. I challenge you to put into practice his very words. I challenge you to wrestle with what he has to say with other people in this congregation because one of the things I know about my God is it's impossible to experience him and not change. And God will change our circumstances to grow us. He will change our priorities to humble us. He will change us and transform us to look more like him. But we have to first repent even if we've known him a long time. A lot of us believe, but we don't repent. So let me pray for us. We're going to pass the offering bags, and if you came prepared to give, I'd encourage you to give, but not out of a compulsion of trying to have your conscience cleared, not out of, well, this is something that we have to do, but that you would do it as honor. We would do it as an act of worship, that we would do it as an opportunity to say, Lord, I am not God, you are, and I trust you, and everything I have is because you first gave it to me, and so I give this back in honor and praise because you are the one true God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you that you are growing not only disciple makers in this place, but you're training us to be worshipers. And Lord, as we worship you in spirit and in truth today, as the Spirit leads us, as we sing these songs, may we sing these songs because we believe these words. May we sing these songs as proclamations and anthems to the fact that you are the God that as we leave this place, we still worship with our lives. So Father, would you take any gifts or offerings that those of us that call this place their home, those of us that believe we're growing through this ministry, Lord, give. And would you take this offering, would you multiply disciple makers? Would you multiply believers? And would you multiply worshipers of you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.